one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job my colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. Now, I, I, don't, I don't hate anyone, and that includes President Biden. But when he tries to blame shrinkflation and inflation on small business people, you have to, to consider the source. Um, so, so much of the attention right now is on President Biden's age. And it's true that it takes longer than a trip to Jupiter uh, for him to walk across the stage. But we can't lose sight of the fact that his economic policies have been almost every time reliably and dependably wrong. And his inflation is a cancer on the American dream. And the American people have figured it out. And that's why, if you believe the polls, the president is polling right up there with, um, with chlamydia. We talk about immigration a lot from an economic perspective, Governor, you know this. We are CNBC, so we come at it from more the economic side, New York City. The mayor, not my opinion, the mayor is warned about massive cuts in services. Chicago, nearly a disaster there. Denver, warning as well. They simply cannot afford the migrant influx. What's interesting is, is that I do not hear a lot about economic woes from Florida, but I would imagine you are a massive destination for migrants. What is the economic story of the border crisis in Florida? Well, it's interesting. I was the first governor to send people to Texas back in 2021 to help at the border. And what they were telling us, these, the Florida State Troopers and National Guard people, was that a, a significant percentage of these uh, illegal aliens wanted to come to Florida, 30, 40 percent of the encounters. And I was like, well, that's not going to work for us. And so we've since enacted policies uh, where we have stronger penalties against people that are smuggling into Florida. And then we have E-Verify, so we have a legal workforce. So you can't just come across the border illegally and work in Florida because we have a system in place uh, that is guaranteeing a legal workforce. I was asked by Xi Jinping uh, about what, when I was in the Tibetan mountains with him, and he said, can you define America for him? I said, yeah, one word, possibilities. Putin, Putin, come do whatever you want in, uh, to, to, to NATO if, they don't, if the other guys on our team don't pay up every single cent they promised to pay for it. I mean, God, what are we talking about here? Jokes aside, according to recent polling, this is a real concern for American voters. How do you address that concern going forward as you come up to the 2024 election? Well, a couple things. Number one, you got to take a look at the other guy. He's about as old as I am, but he can't remember his wife's name. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> number one. Number two, <laughs> it's about how old your ideas are. And everything, every single thing we've done, I think we've got some good things done. Everything, and we, they told us we couldn't get them done because things were so divided. And I really think his views on where to take America are older than, anyway. 
What do you, would you want to do? What's your 2024 agenda? Because I feel like we live in such crazy times that that is one of the things I feel we hear less about. Look, the 2020 agenda is to finish the job. And welcome back to the Unregulated Podcast. This is episode number 171 here on a drizzly Wednesday, February 28th. Normally the last day of February, but we got one of those leap deals tomorrow. I am Tom Pyle, your co-host. And I'm Mike McKenna, and I was awoken by a fire alarm at 5.30 this morning, so I'm a little off my game. So, fair warning. Yes, but we are here together in the AEA studios today, and breaking news just happened this afternoon. I have now, I plan on stepping down. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in that senior senator's chair back there over by the... Great, one of the great, the great, uh, one of the great skills of life is announcing when it's time to, to leave, and I've, I've concluded is now the time is to leave. And I say, and I say boy, I say boy. Uh, Fortunately, I have my feathers numbered for just such an emergency. Just such a... <laughs> all right. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, today the minority leader of the United States Senate, just one day. After sandbagging his Republican partner in the House of Representatives, has announced that he is not going to seek re-election as the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. So, yeah. Now the battle of the Johns begins. I guess they'll wait a day and then they'll then they'll start. But uh, you know, just just for our listeners, you know. Uh, uh, history here he is the longest serving republican leader in allow myself to introduce myself in republican history yeah <laughs> so, and i mean he's had his good he's had his strategic battles he's he's won he's had some wins here's my biggest fear about this can his legacy be the judges and the supreme court or does he need another one and if he does need another one you know how this works, right? When you announce a big thing like yeah, this. Yeah, he's going to look for some. Well, he's What's a, his leg? He wants it to be Ukraine funding? Be, yeah. Is that what it's going to end that's up being? Would, and that's, that's what I was going to say. This is a this is a senator who has a, a career of accomplishments, not the least of which are a, a vibrant and ongoing defense of the First Amendment and a, a remaking of the Supreme Court. It, that should be enough for anybody. It's I, enough for me. I, I, thank I, you, Senator McConnell. I, I don't understand thank this you. mania. Thank you. A thousand thank yous. Yeah, I don't understand this mania with Ukraine thing. I'm like, did I, Yeah, I don't know it's, what, it's, I, I guess, I don't know what the advantage of, of announcing now is other than sparing some very public, what would likely be a very public battle that would be surfacing here in the near oh, future. Oh yeah, no, I think I think this so. is this is actually a gift because it means it means we can settle this out among the three of them and before twenty twenty five because twenty twenty five is going to be very complicated very quickly, no matter who the president is, and it's going to be tough if you if you throw in a a um, a leaders race on top of it. So we'll have the leaders race during a lame duck. Probably where we should have it. So the Johns by by the Johns I'm referring to Senators John Barrasso, Senator John Thune and Senator John Cornyn, all three of which uh flank Senator McConnell uh, on the regular during his press uh gaggles who will all uh be making decisions in the very short run here about whether they want to take the the helm 
I, I understand that the McConnell team is uh, uh, on on in the in the Thune camp. Yeah, always have been. Always and, have been. Um, another one I heard today is is that there's a uh, the the conservatives are rallying around a Tom Cotton insurgency. I don't know if you heard it's, that. It's possible. So. I, I I find it unlikely. I think I think Senator Cotton wants to run for president in twenty twenty eight. I don't think he wants to be majority leader. Um, no, the guy you need to watch the the guy outside the three Johns that you need to watch is Steve Daines. Oh yeah. If Steve Daines has a good year, if he if he brings home five or six of those races and he's sitting. At oh a, yeah, because he's running the. That's the, right. The, the party, the, if he's, the congressional. If he, if he winds up sitting at fifty four, fifty five Republican seats because of his efforts. It's going to be very difficult for him not to get in that race, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else on that? Any any um, thoughts? Yeah, I would point out that the the reality of the world looks like this. John Cornyn's the best fundraiser in that crowd, um, and John Thune is probably the best on TV. Although, and I say this very carefully, as a young man who just had a birthday, he's been looking a little long in the tooth himself lately. Well, he's been around quite a while now, That's too. Right. Right? That's right. That's so. right. Well, he's been around as long as I can remember, which, oh, yeah. you know. And when I worked for Mr. DeLay, we worked on some issues together. I, I expect that the right answer is going to ultimately be two of these fellows are going to form an alliance against the third guy and split up the, the leadership ranks, and that'll be that. Interesting. Ooh. Yeah. I will say this. Uh, McConnell's been leader so long that uh, neither of the Johns will – be able to replicate in in a you know any short order uh, his abilities. Uh, McConnell racked up a whole lot of favors, and when you're in that position, as long as you are, others just just sort of yeah defer take to for you. granted yeah. right the situation. So all of them, as much as they may think they can handle the, the job, will probably struggle. Yeah, probably. I mean, the thing about the Senate is, is that all that stuff is usually kept, um, you know, quiet and behind doors, right? It's not like the House who walk out of meetings and go, that guy's a son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen Lately, in the you know, Senate. Have you seen the Hunter stuff? They're not even waiting for the deposition to be over to get in the get in line to talk to yeah, the press. It, it, so. You know, it, 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 it's one of the last bastions of actual normalcy in this town, <laughs> the United States Senate. People are like, hey, maybe we should think about this before we start talking. Senator, speaking of senators, Senator John Kennedy has not made the highlight reel in a while, but in this segment, uh, in an interview with Sean Hannity, it, it just had to be re-aired here at the it, 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 you know, regulated. I'm sure he doesn't hate anyone, but it sounds like he dislikes chlamydia, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Does he practice these or do they just flow? Oh, I, you know, so Ed Markey. Was he a trial lawyer? No, I don't know. So Ed Markey, you know Ed Markey, right? Markey. For a million shit. years, Ed Markey was the guy who was the go-to for commentary, you know, the press guys when he was in the House, right? And then, of course, he vanished in the United States Senate. So no one's heard of him since. But was in the House, he always had some pithy thing to say, right? And I always had, this, I had the same question as you. Is that accidental or is it something that they work on? And then one day- I'm in there with Marky's staff about something, and sure enough, they they spent two hours kicking around, you know, whiteboarding essentially the no, phrase of that's the day. Sad. It's, uh, it was ridiculous. Yeah, what All that does it takes the takes the whimsy out of the whole operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I had the same thought. You, you, it's a little bit like going going to the kitchen in a restaurant. You just really don't want to see it, right? <laughs> right. Anyway. All right. So, um, Governor DeSantis is. Back in Tallahassee, making it happen, getting stuff done, 
doing the gov thing. He's back. Um, I brought this clip up to show a couple of things. Uh, one is that he's much more comfortable being wonky governor, and and clearly he never was able to break out of that mold. Yeah. This interview we we edited pretty substantially, and what we should do is edit him down to what he should say, and then send it back to Christina, so that they can see like how yeah how to get him like focused right. a little. Well, I... But the but the overarching message I wanted uh, our listeners to hear as well, and that is what Mr. McKenna here, uh, my co-host, has been talking about for quite a while about this solution to the immigration crisis, and that is E-Verify. You, you, if you don't have E-Verify, you don't have an immigration solution. That's just as simple no. as I can make it. And you know, the funny thing is, if Governor DeSantis was a different kind of guy, the first two sentences out of his mouth would have been like, hey man, illegal immigrants are like everybody else. They want to move to Florida because we got like a solid economy and like normal people. And two is... And you got to have E-Verify nationally. But he just... Well, it, it it's just, the it, incidentally it, 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 and the... It's like <laughs> he can cut the intro and the, and the yeah. you know, and the butts and the, you know. But anyway, it's all there. It's all there, but you got to cut through it. Yeah. He is a, a, a very effective and fantastic governor of a very well-managed state. Uh, he took a, took a run at the, at the big house. Will it... Uh, set him back in the future i don't know will he learn things i hope um but until then as long as he's continuing to run florida the way he's uh, running it i think that's a good thing he had he had i'll tell you this much he's got a lineal ancestor who he reminds me very much of and you're gonna laugh when i say this name but it's true a competent governor who could not shut up the first time he ran bill for president clinton. bill clinton <laughs> <laughs> He's Bill Clinton. I mean, he, you know, he just and, and well, there are big differences. There are, there are, yeah. but 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 the core of it is, yeah. You know, as soon as Bill learned how to like shorten and sharpen that message, he yeah. became a very dangerous that character. That's true. So, uh, and he's very young, so he's got a lot of time yeah. to figure it out. Uh, this last section I call the best of the Seth interview. Uh, <laughs> uh, President Biden, of course, the campaign is trying to take the age issue head on and other than his little zinger about Trump, I'm not sure he managed to assuage anybody uh, in that interview. The other thing, you know, we've done done a a bunch of things, Tom, and people say we couldn't do it. it, Is there ice cream around here somewhere? (laughs) You know, the best part about that, he actually went across the street to get ice cream after the hit. Yeah, and uh, he was ridiculous because like, he was talking about a ceasefire in Israel <laughs> while he was licking an ice cream cone. Oh, the best part about that ceasefire thing is when they asked Hamas and the Israelis, they both said, I don't know what the hell that guy's talking about. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we'll probably have it over the week. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> anyway. And by the way, he's going to finish the job in 2020. I, th- that, that phrase scares the hell out of me. Does anybody actually watch those shows anymore or is it just they scroll through the youtube clips like or they get the clips like from podcasts like ours i can't i I can't think does anyone like stay up and watch a late night talk show sure i suspect the same people who watch the news at 6 30 or the national news the, the national network news right it's 
it's it's their it's their slightly younger brothers and sisters, right? The ones who don't have to be asleep by ten thirty. I guess I'm getting old. I, Speaking of, who watches TV anymore? Who watches linear TV? I don't know. I don't. I mean, apart from sports, when was the last time you watched linear TV? I I can't remember. Producer, when was the last time you watched? When was the when was the only time you watched television? Other than sports. Other than sports. I don't watch any television other than sports. Other than sports. <laughs> it, it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay. Speaking of old, uh, I wanted to, um, for those who may not know, our beloved co-host. Celebrated his birthday on Monday. So happy birthday to you, Thank Mr. You. McKenna. I'll and I might say, unlike others in the news, you're aging quite well, sir. <laughs> you're not in, you're not inside my feet at the moment. They, they would tell you a completely different story. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm I'm gonna I am gonna intrude on your on your um planning and grab about a minute at the end of the broadcast, if I may. Sure, to, to talk a little bit about that. Can I can I just say one thing real quick? Yeah. Are we at announcements? Yes, we are. That's okay. that well, first, the first announcement I, is happy I, birthday, I, Mr. McKenna. Thank you. I'm I'm I am deeply touched. I want to thank um three people in particular. Um I, I want to thank everybody, but I want to thank three people in particular. Mr. Pyle, um Shannon B and Mike. Um you guys know who you are. Each in your own way made my birthday very, very special, and I very, very much appreciate it. And I'll say some more at the end. Go ahead. Um, one oh, other and, oh, 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 and it's my sister's birthday on March 3rd. So happy birthday, Beth. She listens to this. So Okay, Beth. Happy yeah. birthday to you. Um, one more announcement. As President Biden desperately seeks a way to calm his pro-Hamas wing, which is evidenced by uh, the, Hamas wing. <laughs> the Michigan <laughs> primary yesterday. Okay. Um, That's funny. We had a chance to talk to a very interesting fellow named Yaron Brook. Yeah. Um, he's fairly well-known Israeli-American entrepreneur, author, public intellectual, and uh, this is the, the money part, the former Israel uh, intelligence officer. And he had some insights on the situation in the Middle East and I guess I would say rather strong opinions about the state of the current leadership in both uh, here and uh, in Israel. So. We'll pop that interview uh, into the episode a little bit later. Uh, and those are my announcements. Okay. Anything else? Nope. That's right. it for me. What happened today in 1854? Oh this day in history. Uh, in uh, Commodore Perry sailed into Japanese harbor. No. Uh, Tokyo Harbor. No. No. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Uh, On this day in the town of Ripon. Oh boy, the Ripon Society, Wisconsin Republican Party was formally organized. Oh, yeah, yeah, it 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 great. <laughs> in 1947, what happened today in 1947? December 28, 1947. Not a very good. February 28th. February 28, 1947. Okay, this was the Berlin Airlift. No, this was this was a um, uh, I don't know. An anti-government uprising in Taiwan was violently put down by Chiang Kai-shek. By the way, is there some other way to put down an uprising? And his, uh, I'm going to blow. Kuomintang. 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 Republic of China government with the loss of estimated 18 to 28,000 lives, which marks the beginning of the white terror. Wow. That, that that sounds that sounds both fascinating and terrible. 
Okay, on this day in 19... Although I have to be honest with you, I'm thinking about that as my new nickname. The White Terror? The White Terror. <laughs> doesn't work in today's... In today's <laughs> Go era. ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. You, you, you're you about 10 <laughs> years couple, too late. Just a little that. bit too late? Yeah. <laughs> okay. 1991, on this day, February 28th, 1991. What happened today? And, uh... It, we, let me give you a hint. Joe J. Uh, Simpson. It, it, it created an air of, of invincibility for one George H.W. Bush. Oh, yeah. The, somebody, we killed Saddam Hussein. No, this or, was the end of the, the Iraq the, the War. The end of the first Iraq War. After is the Iraq War over yet? ceasefire following what? their retreat is he, from Kuwait. Is, he awake? is the Iraq War over? Are we out of that country now? Did we not take casualties in it as recently as two weeks ago? I'm just saying. I'm just asking. The mission seems accomplished, but evidently it wasn't. And I'm just saying. And then, and then this happened in 2013. Oh, I have no clue. You know I don't do recent history. And this day in 2013, Benedict XVI became the first pope to resign since Gregory XII in 1415. Yeah, you can't resign. You can't resign. If I can't resign from my life, you can't resign from your life. That's just the way it is. You left out one important date in 1953 on this day. Fire it up. What do you got? Watson and Crick. DNA. The double helix structure. Oh, oh really? Yep. Okay. Today Fire was the day up. they nailed that down. Most important that, most important single thing in, in, in the last, I don't know, 50 years, did, probably did 75 years. The, was, that, was that the breakthrough that helped us get the COVID-19 vaccine? <laughs> well... It helped a bunch of things. Let's put it that way. <laughs> By the way, I didn't include this in the clips, but I'm going to put in the show notes. Dr. Phil yeah, did some, was on The View. Yeah, tortured somebody. Tortured yeah. the ladies on The View with, I, the, with the post-COVID stuff. I heard about brilliant. that. I heard about that. <laughs> okay. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Like it brilliant. All right. Michigan primary, any thoughts? Yeah, I have one really important thought. Fire it up. What do you got? Whatever nonsense you've been hearing about the Michigan primary and how it shows weakness uh, for Mr. Trump, uh, you know, I'm a, as devotees of this podcast are probably aware, I'm a bit of a numbers guy. So let me just give you the two relevant numbers of Michigan. President Trump won the Republican primary with 756,000 votes. Pretty good. Pretty good turnout. Yeah, he basically um, he basically thumped um, if you Governor inc- Governor Haley. Haley's numbers. That's about a million. Yeah, a little bit north of that. Um, but the important comparative is the Democrats in total had seven hundred nineteen thousand votes, and that was a, a including an aggressive is that including the uncommitted. Yes, campaign? including aggressive uncommitted. Right. About 719,000. So what I'm telling you is, is that all this nonsense about this is danger, danger, Will Robinson, danger signs for the president, blah, 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 blah. Bottom line is 37,000 more votes than the other guys. Enthusiasm. Cap. If I was a Democrat, that that those two numbers would worry me very greatly. That was my, that's my big takeaway from Michigan. I've been reading all these stories. I'm like, like what, what numbers are you looking at? You know, it, it, you should be thinking about it like what what do those two guys look like in a well, matchup? I mean, this is what yeah, they look like in a matchup. Got, not only does the if Michigan is the thing, which everyone's I keep saying it comes down to Pennsylvania, but others keep saying it comes down to Michigan or maybe both. If it's the thing and you've got a, a enthusiasm gap combined with the fact that you've got to try to re engage 
the the deer uh, the dearborn crowd or dearborn crowd. you can call it the dearborn crowd what, what's the, the you, know, you the can call it there you can call it the pro hamas crowd crowd like it then too. you got a problem because that yeah if that you think in israel isn't going away anytime soon that's right if you strike out the uncommitted if you strike out the uncommitted he actually outpulled um president biden by about one hundred fifteen thousand votes which by the way that's a remarkable number in Michigan, right? Where I think the boss won the first time around by about 16,000 votes. I think last time he lost by about 20,000 votes. Yeah. So we're talking about 5X, a margin of 5X over the last margin. That, it, Like I said, I keep reading all these stories. And I'm like, this is nonsense. You people are looking at all the wrong numbers. So it's- Okay. Sorry. That's all I got too. I just, um, uh, I was going to say the same thing about the, the uncommitted and what a challenge- yeah. has on that issue because the right thing to do of course uh is the question is qu- question is in michigan in michigan especially right the question but you know this is a problem across across the country for for president Biden, right the coalition the 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 young people and the anti is this from the, your from your column a little bit give us a little yeah. t- sample Ooh. of the biden coalition yeah i mean the biden coalition right the two the two people the two groups in the coalition who are starting to shake apart are the young people and the anti-israeli pro-hamas whatever you want to call <laughs> yeah. them um it's a huge problem and the michigan thing is a is just a little fire bell in the night you know, for the Biden team, it's going to be everywhere, right? The, the, it's especially pointed in Michigan because you have yeah, a large Arab a community. But you know what? You get young people in Pennsylvania. You have anti-war people in Wisconsin, everywhere. So it's going to be a huge problem. And you know what the thing is? And this is the question now. This has become now the question of the campaign. When does that get baked into the cake? At what point is it too late to to change that, right? I don't think it's now. But we're we're within ninety days of now. I mean, this killing keeps going for ninety days. It's going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, let's put your column on Biden in the show notes. I liked it. It was really really good. Well, thank you. I yeah. appreciate you uh, saying for that. For those who don't haven't read it, it's basically the Democrats don't want anybody but Biden in November. They can't have the coalition they, blows up. That's right. He's he is the last of the he is the last of the. Um, He's the last nominee of this coalition. Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna have to come up with a new coalition. Now. And, and, and interestingly enough, the Republicans are in the exact same position because the difference is, is win that, or lose, unless Trump you know yeah, loses yeah. and runs again, win or lose. Yeah, um, agreed. You know the Republicans are going to go through this either next year or in four years. That's right. Here's the difference, and it's an important one. The Republicans are ten years down this road. Yeah. You know the Democrats. The Democrats are just on the front edge of this coalition shifting thing. It's going to be really painful. And the good news is, is that it's not ever going to be Gavin Newsom. That's you know he, he had. He <laughs> wait had, a minute. Wait, we got to talk about Gavin a little bit later. He, he had his. He had his moment. I think it's over. Go ahead. All right. Uh, do we want to talk about the spending fight I sure. on the on the hill at all? Do you want to give any color on this? So the big four, they call them. Had a meeting in the White House it's, yesterday. It's kind of ironic given that two of the guys are shorter than me. Yeah. Um, essentially, they ganged up on Speaker Johnson. Uh, they, you know, McConnell pretty much joined arms with both Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries and Biden and just basically just, yeah. you know, tried to, you know, yes. beat him down. And walked and walked out and sunk him. Too. Yep. It was really it was, embarrassing it, it, it and was, despicable from my perspective, yeah. and, and I lost a lot of 
It was, uh, and why I was kind of being tongue in cheek about McConnell. I lost a lot of respect for McConnell. It's, uh, it's, with that it, little it's unfortunate. So. It is unfortunate that he, you know, it, it costs you nothing to remain silent in those circumstances. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I think Speaker Johnson has seen the writing on the wall. My understanding is, uh, is that he is, he has, he feels he has no choice but to not shut the government down. I don't agree with that. But he he b- believes in the sh- in the long run that's preservation of the majority type stuff. I don't know if that's true or not. He doesn't have a lot of leverage because he doesn't have enough votes to get anything really right. like done. So my uh, my understanding is how it's going to go right now is they're going to try to get the first tranche of the bills. Yep. Combined with an, uh, an extension um, of the CR. That's right. And then do the second tranche and and try. Uh, try desperately to get some concessions, policy concessions, but that that's not looking so great. It still does not guarantee any Ukraine funding, however, which I I think is good. He wants that to go last and and have other stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't see how we get away from having a shutdown just because everybody seems to want one on the Republican side. Let me say this: I and I can't take credit for this. Our good friend and guest of honor last night thought about it. Yeah. If we have even a short shutdown, it's likely that it helps us with the CRA stuff, which yeah, I, might be a good thing. I've heard that argument a couple times now. It's probably – here's the thing. You get a lot of argument about how long this mythical shutdown is going to take. Right, right. I got guys who think, it's going to be 30 days. I'm like, there's no way it's going to be 30 days. It might be 10 days, yeah. but it's not going to be so 30 here's days. Here's the bottom line, though, ultimately. Uh, no matter what they decide, no matter what numbers they end up with, if it's a plus up of domestic and this and that, the idea that somehow this puts President Trump, and I'm a big fan of President Trump, but let's just not kid ourselves. Cutting spending is not and has never been a priority of he, Donald J. Trump. That's right. He views it as a political in his life, in his business right. life. You know, debt, uh, debt, uh, debt is debt, debt is, is a debt is a functioning tool that he that's believes right. strongly in. That's right. As a as a a, a product that yeah. helps him. Yeah. Right. So, I, I just I got a little bit annoyed when I heard people say, "Oh, this is really bad," because then Trump's stuck with these higher numbers, <laughs> and I'm like, he doesn't care about higher numbers. Right. But no, set that aside. Um, it's likely that. We'll see, you know, some progress on 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 half the bills and some extension, and or like you said, a short term shutdown. That's right. So that's all. I'll say I think that's that. right. And you know what? I don't be too upset if there's, you see some or all of the above in various combinations. And then the last thought on Trump, right? President Trump has been pretty clear. He cares about three things, and three things only this go around. He cares about immigration. He cares about um, trade tariffs, crime. And he cares about tariffs. That's right. And then the second order thing is he wants to, you know, settle some scores. I like the idea of giving foreign aid as a loan that you can claw back any time. Like, that's kind of fun. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to Uh, that. All right. So this is an op-ed that uh, I think our producer shared with us, with me. I thought this was a little bit weird. I never heard this argument before. Um, And they've introduced a new term. For Republicans, no longer do Republicans simply pounce or seize. Oh boy, Let's but get now it. they cripple apparently. So who the Republicans would crush 
Yes. The IRS, by forcing its workers back into the office. <laughs> this is from the Hill. This is some guy who uh, is some... Former IRS agent. The CEO of the hybrid work consultancy, disaster avoidance experts, and the author of Returning to the Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams. That sounds like a bodice ripper right there. (laughs) (laughs) In the bustling corridors of power where the future of American governance is debated, a new battlefield has emerged. Oh, boy. That is surprisingly intimate yet profoundly important. Could this guy, wait a minute, we're like a sentence into it. Could we jam any more stupid the cliches? The workspaces of federal employees, the Internal Revenue Service, a cornerstone of the federal apparatus, finds itself at the epicenter of this debate as Republican leaders wield sharp critiques against its telework policies. This controversy is not just about, I can't even do it. Please stop. Please make it stop. Where IRS employees plug in their laptops. Rather, it is a microcosm of the broader ideological clash over the size and scope of government in our lives. The IRS's approach to telework has become a litmus test for the future of federal work in an era defined by rapid technological and cultural okay, make it shifts make it stop let me just let me say two things real quick first off uh, this program is uh, endorsed sponsored whatever however we're going to say this by the washington times and see that kind of writing is okay for the hill but if you turn that into the times <laughs> i tear it up i tear it up myself i'm like it's a piece of junk it's an op-ed it's a piece of junk it's a piece of junk as an op-ed it's a piece of junk it's it's objectively terrible that's thing one thing two is one of my first gigs in washington i'm not going to tell you when because it'll tell you how old i am was with a guy named al de la bovi and al was old was old school po- politician from new york city and um <clears throat> al had a theory about life this was way back in the in the prehistoric times, I was like, we should just send all the federal workers home. Let them work from home. Yeah, don't don't right. don't let them do anything. No, this guy, just give them the money. And, no, this and, and guy just, thinks they're. Let me. Uh, I, I think it's the greatest idea ever. And I'm like, you'd much rather be at home and have them be, as as I said on numerous occasions, nobody really wants a thrifty and industrious federal workforce. Attacks by uh, Republicans on telework at the IRS fits within a broader agenda. Oh Telework has been proven highly beneficial for the operations of the U.S. government, but his agenda, this agenda has less to do with an efficient IRS than a less powerful IRS. It's just amazing. It's all big talks about how telework makes the IRS, like, that the Republicans... I wonder what the cover of that book looks like. <laughs> <laughs> the IRS is better able to retain its staff and recruit better talent. Do you think in it, pl- proving the re- quality of human capital responsible for gathering government revenue. Do you think it's got Fabio on the front of it? I don't know. Man. It's crazy <laughs> town. We live in crazy town. Okay. All right. Here we go. This is from LinkedIn. I wanted you to see the picture. These are two proud secretaries of labor. Spain's labor minister, Yolanda Diaz. Yo, Londa. Had a great conversation with acting secretary Julie Sue Sue or Sue they they signed a proclamation about some uh something important in terms of AI and equity and workers rights around the globe okay very nice she's also meeting with the UAW she is literally a communist 
She's well, a member of the Communist Party. What do you mean, literally a communist? Literally a communist. Like she's a her 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 I'm sorry political is, affiliation is communist. I'm sorry. Are the are the Biden? Am I wait? <laughs> am I did I make? I'm a little confused here. <laughs> this is the best part. Uh, don't they don't they see each other at the Tuesday night meetings just on the regular? She <laughs> she gave a speech to praise Hugo Chavez for quote his irreplaceable role in the implementation of the Bolivarian Revolution. We must recognize his his most worthy liberator. Chavez has taken up the dream of the unity of the peoples of the Americas. This is the guy who screwed up he, Venezuela? She, she also had words of affection for Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro. Sure. Fidel, one of the essentials of the 20th century. A revolutionary. The peoples have walked with him and will walk. Farewell, Commander. Well, yeah, I mean, they'll walk with him to the slave labor camps <laughs> so that he was running. Right. I, I, so, guess, I guess it's easy. So we got to like... like I'm sorry, this chick is from Spain, right? She's the, the, the second vice president and minister of labor it's, and social economy. In Spain. In Spain. She doesn't even live in the Americas. Like, she doesn't even live like, in this hemisphere. Like, like the picture is so great because it's like they're they're both just so happy to like spend time together. So. I have no idea why this lady's still sitting at labor. I have no idea why this lady's still sitting in Spain. She should get her over here. You want to lead a revolution? Come on. <laughs> Come on! Got the red administration for it. See, like I said, they show up on Tuesday night's meeting. We, you know, we hand out donuts and Che Guevara posters. All right, before I get into this next segment, I wanted to play this little little commercial for you. Look, she's on another vacation. Wow, so happy for you, smiley face emoji. Funny how the words you type don't reveal the jealousy you actually feel. Thanks, Captain Obvious. How is she there and we're here? Condoms. All right. Um, what in the hell are you leading me to here? This is from Axios. Of course. Mike Allen. Aaron Darty. Nikki Haley, quote, very possible GOP has shifted towards Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley said Tuesday, it's very possible the GOP has shifted away from her views. It, it, but the <laughs> good lord! Isn't it possible the party has moved and the party is about Donald Trump and not what you're describing, which might be the party of yesterday? CNN's Dana Bash asked Haley on Tuesday. It's very possible, the former <laughs> South Carolina governor said. What I am saying to my Republican Party family is, we are in a ship with a hole in it. And we can neither go down with the ship and watch the country go socialist left. Or we can see that we need to take the life raft and move in a new direction. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you, sister. But I I don't know how to say this, but you you guys. (laughs) Other than Captain Obvious. You guys have had the helm for like 75 years and (laughs) things have been getting worse. I'm like, how how much worse? How is it that it's gotten like. Yeah, better. Tell me what what you guys have done better. I I mean, the one one guy. I was doing research today and I saw that clip and I was just like, I saw the one guy. The one guy who did better was Ronald Reagan before Trump. The one guy who did different and better was Ronald Reagan. And the establishment hated his guts. And guess what happened? What? Picked Bush. 
Yeah. A horrible mistake. And then... Yeah, the poor the guy. The whole shift paused for what? Like it, 15, a, 20 years? It's a Shakespearean tragedy. He had one flaw, and that is he really wanted these guys' approval, so he picked Bush, and it was been a, it's been a catastrophe ever since. I... I <laughs> Whatever. Wow, okay. What? It's true. I know. I know. I, I'm not alone in I thinking just, this. I just, you know, I I also wanted an excuse to play one of those old hotels.com. Vaguely possible. So vaguely possible that the party shifted. As witness. All right. I am going to start this section, the speed round the speed of round. EVs, yep. with a wonderful song. South of the border. Up until now, the threat posed by imported Chinese EVs to wet established Western automakers has been seen as mainly European, a European problem. European tariffs on such imports are 10%, U.S. tariffs 27.5%. Moreover, smaller Chinese EVs may be better suited to European tastes. However, via Reuters, February 14th, China's BYD company, LTD, will set up a new electric vehicle factory in... Mexico. Nikkei reported on Wednesday, citing the company's Mexico head as the EV maker aims to establish an export hub to the United States. Yeah, it's like they want Trump to be president. The uh, According to the report, BYD has launched a feasibility study for the Mexican plan and is currently negotiating with officials over terms, including the location. The car maker's Mexico office declined to comment. Yeah. It, to, if the Mexicans allow this, it will be tantamount to a trade, to announcement of a trade war between the Mexicans and the Americans. I'm looking forward to how the Mexicans and the Biden team Biden finesses this particular problem. Because the, the difference is tariffs, Mexico subject tariffs two and a half percent. This is 10x, right? This is 27 and a half. It, it, we talked about this last week, right? It, it, you know, the the Polestar guys, they're they're bad mojo. They can put it on the docks in Lo in Long Beach for eleven thousand bucks, and you know, Team Biden's constructed a world in which EVs are going to be mandated. So we actually have a world in which Chinese EVs are going to be mandated. It's it's the, if somebody can explain it to the voters in two sentences, it, it's going to blow this entire campaign up. Okay, so just to, cl to close the article, the yeah. current forced transition to EVs is in its way a classic example of central planning at work. Yeah. This new story is yet another reminder that, like most classic examples of central planning, it will end up in a very bad place. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, and as a chaser, this, this was this morning introduced by U.S. Senator Josh Hawley. Yeah. Protecting American Auto Workers from China Act. Good for him. New legislation that would counter the threat posed to the U.S. auto industry by raising tariffs on autos imported from China and closing the back door China, uh, Chinese automakers use to evade U.S. trade laws. Yep. Um, Senator Hawley's staffer on this, I want to give her a shout out. It's uh, Kylie Bowman. She's, she's top drawer. So d just the nuts and bolts of the law. Increase the base tariff rate of auto imports from China to 100%. Yeah, he can read he can read the data too. For a total too. tariff of 125%. Yeah. on all imported autos from China. Yeah. Apply the higher tariffs to all imported autos manufactured by Chinese automakers irrespective of where 
of where the car is manufactured. That's totally right. That's totally right. And here, this is literally yeah. in this in this PR press release. This means Chinese automakers cannot use other nations such as Mexico. Yeah. Hey, look, J- Josh Hawley, I, you know, he may not get along with everybody, but but he's a smart guy. He, he knows what's going on. 100%. So. Here's another one, and I hate to beat up on Chris Farley's cousin all the time. He he, he kind of, I don't want to say he asked he's for it, but he's being honest some he, of the time. Well, you know, that's the thing about it. He's kind of out there. I mean, look, he's he's better than that disaster from General Motors. Yes, of course. I don't even talk about her anymore because it makes my blood That's boil. right. Her, she, she, she's dead to us. Anyhow, uh, this what, is from Electric. What did Jim Farley, what did Jim Farley say? <laughs> well, it's not what he said. It's. It's what more what Ford did. Oh, the suspension. And didn't know about it until now. And it happened months ago. The suspension on the shipping. Ford halted shipments of the 2024 F-150 Lightning pickup earlier this month, as reports say. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Ford trucks have piled up in holding lots around Detroit. All 2024 Lightning miles have been halted over an undisclosed quality issue. Undisclosed quality issue. Meanwhile, shipments of the gas-powered 2024 F-150 began again last week after hundreds or even thousands of trucks piled up in Detroit lots. I want you to think about how sad your life is that you pile up in a lot outside of Detroit. (laughs) I mean, it kind of makes you feel bad for these cars, man. CEO Jim Farley, Chris Farley's cousin, said quality was a top priority on the company's Q4 earnings call. Farley mentioned mentioned quality now factors into 70% of the short-term incentives for Ford's management. Yeah, he he did have a quality problem when he got there. He acknowledged that and he's trying he's working to fix it, right? Yeah. Now, I they're they're Ford is going to be the first convert who's going to get up along with Toyota and say this stuff is nonsense. The best part about it is at the very end, there's a little like a little editorial. Yeah, of course. If you've been eyeing Ford's all electric pickup, now is the best time to start shopping. The automaker is clearing out the 2023 models. After after, we can help you find the right model at the right price. Click the link here for a ship Ford dealer near you. After basically telling (laughs) you the thing's a piece of junk, (laughs) he's going to say the thing's a piece of junk. But if you want to buy it, we can help you with it. it. Um, All right, I got another one on EVs. Yeah, big big news. Yeah, this is from Bloomberg. Bloomberg broke it first. Yeah, what is it? Apple. Oh yeah. To wind down electric car effort after a decade-long odyssey. Yeah, Project Titan. So the phone guys are no longer uh, going to uh, unveil their all-electric, self-driving, autonomous vehicle. After all, after uh, how many years now? 20 years. 20 years they've been on this thing? 20, or is it a decade? Oh, it's been longer than a decade. They've been at it for a long time. It's- Billions of dollars. I'm thankful that it wasn't our money, at least. Um, and the the team uh, has hundreds of soft hardware engineers and vehicle designers. It's possible they will be able to apply for jobs on other Apple teams, but there will certainly be layoffs. It turns out that making a moving machine, a machine that moves through space and time in all kinds of weather reliably and durably is really freaking hard. Yeah, you'd think, but... I mean, think but, about it. Throw, the, throw, the, throw, the, 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 the ice ban has already had a funeral 
Yeah, seriously. Seriously. I'm sorry, the ice is what but but of course the ice vehicle is already on the way out, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Already, sure. uh, there's already obituaries being. You should do, just this. try try an experiment right here on on air. Once you keep throwing your apple on the ground, and let's see how long it'll last. <laughs> <laughs> apple once envisioned creating a car without a steering wheel and pedals, <laughs> but it scrapped that notion earlier. <laughs> Otherwise known as a donkey cart. <laughs> the, the company also spent time working on the rem, a remote command center that could take over for a driver most recently apple had imagined the car being priced at around a hundred thousand dollars jeez almighty so anyway uh but then it turned but, but, apple iCar. but then it turned no iCar for us apple people then it turned out that chevy was already making a corvette for a hundred thousand bucks and it worked so they gave up on it uh, right, i'm done with evs I, I got one more ev thing got it yeah the mercedes announced Yesterday, Mercedes in the I greatest too, in the yeah. greatest announcement in the history of mankind. Mercedes announced that they would actually build cars in the ratios, like regular cars to electric vehicles, in the ratios uh, demanded by customers. And and they did. Whoa! <laughs> this is mind blowing stuff. Are you just, kidding me? Started, no way! I read it. I started laughing. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding? And you know, the great thing is the reporter, the reporter who's no doubt some kid with like braces still, right? Food stuck in him. He's, he had no awareness at all, like to, to you know, point out that that's pretty much the way the market's worked for a hundred years now. Like we're, we're going to make cars that people want and sell it to them at a price like they can afford and makes us a profit. It just, it blew me away. The whole story just blew me away. I was, and you know, I said this before, and I'll say it again. I keep coming back to it because I think it was a watershed moment. The Chinese in front of the um, Conference of the Parties, a couple of months before the Conference of the Parties said, you know, we're still going to do our net zero, but we're not going to have a date on it anymore. Yeah. So it was basically when we get to it, right? And if you watch all these car guys, they're doing the same thing. They're like, yeah, no, we're absolutely going to get to that. You know, we're just not might get to it in time. Like, yeah. you know, the same timetable, you guys, you know, and, and, and you can feel them kind of slicing the cheese on this thing. They're like, Mercedes, like, yeah, customers. And Ford's like, well, yeah, we're going to really think these lines through. It's just, I said it at the time, and I think it, I've been confirmed. The Chinese sort of set the tone on this thing. Yeah, but what's going to happen when the rule comes out? It's going to get bounced by the Supreme Court, and if it does, no, 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 not not what's going to happen. What are the autos going to say when the rule comes out? They're uh, going to say, "Oh, we appreciate the fact that the Biden administration yeah. listened to us," and you know they're going to say happy things about the rule, which yeah, doesn't change the fundamental problem. Uh, it, it's going to come down to it's going to come down to for the for the auto guys how they ha, how they approach the rule is who they think is going to win the election. If they think Trump's going to win the election, they'll attack the rule. Well, the ACP guys clearly think Trump's going to win win the election. Yeah, <laughs> well, let's not get into that can of worms. <laughs> All right, let's turn over to our uh, special guest, uh, our Israeli expert, Yaron Brook. Yeah, we are very pleased this. This episode to be joined by Yaron Brook and uh, to uh, not so as to not butcher his resume, we will let Mr. Brook describe himself, what he's what he's doing at the moment, and then let's get right into the interview. Absolutely. So uh, I am the uh, chairman of the board of the Einwand Institute. I was the CEO of the Einwand Institute for seventeen years. 
Uh, I also host my own uh, show, The Iran Brooks Show, on YouTube, podcast, uh, every way you want. Uh, I, in my distant past, was a uh, finance professor at Santa Clara University and, uh, and uh, even further back, I was born and raised in Israel and, uh, and served in the Israeli military intelligence uh, a long time ago. Do you live in the States or in Israel now? I live in the United States. I, I actually today live in Puerto Rico. Oh, very nice. We're in Puerto oh, Rico. Great. We're in Puerto Rico. Uh, I live in San Juan. I live in San Juan. We moved here just over six years ago from uh, Southern California. So I used to live in California. Yeah. Another immigrant from California. Yes. <laughs> I love, I love many to, of us. I love Puerto Rico. I love Puerto Rico. It's one of my favorite spots. It's beautiful here. It, it is. It's a great place to live. It's very nice. Well, let's start with. Let's start with Israel and the Middle East and the situation that's taking place right before our eyes. Um, you having been with your past um, and your experiences, I'm sure you have a lot of opinions about kind of the state of, of everything and sort of what the U.S., how the U.S.'s uh, leadership has, has really sort of blurred the lines a little bit from my perspective in terms of of how they're managing this this situation, um, what what where do you want to start with that? I know it's, there's a lot to unpack there, but yeah, um, there's a lot there. I mean, look, this is politics, and 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 Biden is trying to tread a very fine line. On the one hand, there is kind of the old liberal, the old left, which is very supportive of Israel and wants uh, and and wants to see Israel success. And of course, uh, has has catered and then be successfully catered to a, a Jewish vote, uh, which has politically uh, benefited them uh, tremendously. They get a I don't know over ninety percent of Jews in America historically have voted have voted for the Democratic Party. On the other hand, there is a new left, uh, and uh, there is a new left in the Democratic Party that is very antagonistic towards Israel. Not a little bit antagonistic. Not you know the two sides of. It, very antagonistic, river to the sea antagonistic, and uh, uh, borderline or not borderline supportive of Hamas. And, it, you know, Biden can't afford to lose their support. So he is treading a fine line. Uh, and on the one hand, supportive of Israel, uh, providing funding and, and weapons uh, to Israel, allowed Netanyahu a, a pretty free hand early on in the conflict, but now is starting to squeeze Netanyahu is starting to limit him. I think he was doing that privately from the beginning. I mean, I don't think Biden went to uh, to uh, Tel Aviv, uh, to Israel, in order to, uh, you know, because he's big friends with Benjamin Netanyahu. I think he went there because it was a great PR stunt and because he was trying to squeeze Netanyahu. He was trying to tell him, look, you got to play by by certain uh, guidelines. Um, you know, and I, so this is the this is the kind of the state of politics, but this is the state of politics for both Republicans and Democrats. Republican Party has a very pro-Israel wing and a very anti-Israel wing. You know, Israel politics right now are not simple uh, in, in either party. And historically, the United States has always let Israel do its thing to defend itself to an extent. Has always reigned Israel in, always, in my view, to the detriment of Israel and to the detriment of the national security of the United States. But it's always reigned Israel in, starting in the 1973 Yom Kippur War, 
uh, but maybe most, you know, and, and Reagan in Beirut, uh, people don't know this, but Reagan, or don't remember this, Reagan in, uh, Reagan in 1983 in Beirut prohibited Israel from killing Yasser Arafat. Uh, he basically gave Yasser Arafat safe passage out of Beirut with his 6,000 PLO fighters onto UN boats, and they sailed off to Tunisia to continue their terrorist activity and foment uh, mayhem in the Middle East. Uh, that is to the credit or the discredit of Ronald Reagan. And then, of course, uh, Bush, uh, during the Second Intifada, uh, again, made it impossible for Israel to to uh, kill Yasser Arafat, in spite of the fact that uh, Israel wanted to, and he certainly deserved it. Uh, but uh, he was allowed to live, and the Second Intifada lasted longer than it should. So uh, the pattern of the United States forcing Israel to compromise and to rein it in uh, it continues, and and it, it it's and it plays into again the politics of Democrats and Republicans vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Israel. All right, let me let me ask it. I I, I want to ask this question, and it sounds um, aggressive and hostile. That I don't mean it that way, but I can't think of any other way to ask it. How much longer is this going to go on? This this particular well, thing that we're in the middle of. Well, this particular thing. Yeah. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't asking. I wasn't asking for the Middle East in general. Just, just this yeah. particular thing we're in. Uh, it's gonna. It, it, it's gonna last anywhere from. It's gonna last months. It's still gonna last months. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna, and it. It really depends on how, uh, how much Israel feels like it can actually do what is necessary to do. But look, Hamas has no interest in a, a negotiated deal here. The only card they have is the hostages. They're not giving them up unless they get a big wish list that Israel is not willing to provide. And the only way they would negotiate, the only way they will even consider giving up the hostages is if Israel's on the verge of killing the leadership in Gaza. And uh, we're getting, you know, so in a few, in a month or two, that might be the situation and, and maybe there'll be some resolution. Uh, but it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna last uh, a, a two to three more months in terms of intense operations on the ground. After that, it's what Israel would call cleanup operations, and uh, that that could last until the end of the year. Okay, right answer for um, right answer for the United States. Right answer for Israel. There's two. There's two theories of two schools of thought on this. One is, hey, we want to have a Middle East where the Persians are part of the balance, and the other is, forget that. The we want to run. You know, the Saudis are our boys, and we want to run them, and we want them and the Israelis to come to some kind of accommodation and proceed accordingly and ice out the Persians. Which is the right answer? Yeah, the only right answer is the second answer. There is no legitimate case for the first. The Iranian regime is responsible for pretty much all the mayhem in the Middle East and has been for a long time. And indeed, I believe the Iranians have been at war with the United States from their perspective— since 1979, since they came to power, uh, since they took the, the, the embassy hostage and have been killing Americans without really any, uh, uh, you know, any kind of retribution. They've been killing Americans, uh, you know, starting with the Marines and their barracks in Beirut to 1983 and on and on and on to this day. So the Iranian regime, there will not be any kind of uh, peaceful resolution in the Middle East until the Iranian regime is long gone, whether that happens internally because of an internal revolution or whether it needs 
impetus for the United States or Israel, as long as the mullahs reign in Tehran, the Middle East is going to be a complete and utter disaster, which is bad for the U.S. and, and bad for And that leads directly to my second question, and one that I have pondered for a number of years, and no one can give me a straight answer. Why... Why does one party in the United States insist on playing footsie with the Iranians? One party, both parties play footsie with the one with you. party plays footsie with the Iranians. The other oh. tolerates them. The one plays. I, I may be wrong, but I don't think Mr. Trump ever sent a, a boat, a plane load of cash to the Iranians. No, but Trump was trying to negotiate a better deal uh, in in the background. There, there, there was no, and there was no better deal with the Iranians. I mean, that is that is. Uh, that is mythology, and that is uh, to pretend uh, that you're doing something. And and uh, uh, you know, Bush tried to negotiate, and you know, went to war with Iraq, which only served Iranian interests. Um, I mean, it, it, the reality is that nobody has had the appropriate strategic response to Iran uh, since the revolution, since the Iranian Revolution in '79. And and this is now it's true. The Democrats are softer. They're softer generally on on uh, on on the Middle East, but. Uh, it's not like Republicans have a strategy and they know exactly what they're doing and the Democrats keep thwarting them. No, I mean, it's two blind political parties fumbling around in the Middle East. I think, Fair. That, uh, I think the Democrats want to play footsie because the Democrats have a particular view of the world in which you can negotiate deals. Uh, you know, people are reasonable. You know, we can come to some kind of agreements and we really want to limit their ability to to, to develop nuclear weapons. And we can do that if we just sit down and we just negotiate. These are all reasonable people. And uh, and I think that until the world re realizes that religious fanatics, and I would say no matter what religion, but certainly the religion of Islam, religious fanatics are not reasonable people. They're not people you can sit down and negotiate with. They will not abide by any deal. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and you've got to handle them the only way that it's possible to handle them, and that is, you know, Iran is such a, it, such a perfect place uh, to actually change the structure, the, the dynamics in the Middle East. Iraq was a disaster, partially because they, the Iraqis didn't want democracy, the Iraqis didn't have freedom in their hearts or whatever. The Iranians actually have. You know, 40% uh, uh, of the Iranian population is secular. Uh, either They either call themselves uh, 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 atheist or, or non-believers or whatever, uh, they're very, very uh, friendly towards the West. They're very interested in becoming a Western country. Uh, and they are ruled by theocrats. It is the one country in the world, one country in the Muslim world where you could actually affect, quote, regime change, uh, I think fairly easily. But after the disaster of Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't think anybody has the stomach for it, Listen, sadly. Let's hope not. Um, so... Go ahead, Tom. I was just going to ask you, um, October 7th, some some viewed or reported um, as a major security lapse uh, in what would otherwise be one of the most um, effective security apparatus in the world. And um, second part to that question, Netanyahu um, how do you view his role, his leadership, and is he the right guy for the job, and will he finish the job uh, yeah. from your perspective? So, yeah, there's no question October 7th was a massive intelligence failure, but it wasn't an intelligence failure at the level of 
the the intelligence um, soldiers or, or or even the the, the Mossad or the, the the Shin Bet, which is the internal security, they had all the data. They they knew Hamas was training for something like this. They knew it was a it was likely to happen. It is senior people within the intelligence services and who said, "Nah, this can't be real. We we, we don't trust this stuff." And this is hubris. It's arrogance, um, and it is a false perception of Hamas, which I think the Israelis have entertained for a long time now, and that has been really driven by the political leadership. Uh, I, so, my view of Netanyahu is very negative and has been for over 20 years. Uh, Netanyahu gives a great speech. I love his speeches at the UN. I think they're some of the best speeches anybody gives anyway. His, his follow-up on the speeches is exactly zero and usually negative, he usually does the opposite. Um, so Netanyahu had the perspective of, no, no, Hamas is moderating, Hamas wants, they, 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 they like the power, they like the money, they like to live well, they're not going to engage in a war with Israel. They might do tit for tat, but they're not going to do anything serious. And that filtered down into the military command. And even though they had the intelligence from the soldiers, the people who actually accumulate intelligence, they refused to acknowledge it and refused to accept it. There's also a story about Egyptian intelligence literally telling Netanyahu this was going to happen and him ignoring it. Uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that is that lands up being true, even though he's uh, he's uh, claimed that it isn't. I think Netanyahu's been one of the weakest presidents, uh, prime ministers in Israeli history. The only thing that drives Netanyahu is political power. What he wants is to be prime minister, and he will do whatever is necessary to 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 be uh, prime minister. He wrote a he wrote a fabulous book in the 1990s about terrorism where he basically, chapter one, and every chapter was basically never negotiate with terrorists. He became prime minister in the late 90s. First thing he did, started negotiating with terrorism, with terrorists. Uh, and, and that is a pattern. He, he, he's fought several wars in Gaza and allowed Israel to basically lose or, or reach a stalemate. He released thousands of prisoners for one Israeli soldier when Hamas took them. You know, just a, a disaster, I think in terms of the incentives that provided the, the Hamas. Uh, he he, won, he fought at least one war with uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, lost it basically. So no, I think he's a disaster. I think it's all about political power. Now, will he follow through this time? He actually might. And the reason is not because he's changed his mind and suddenly you know he, he he's a tough guy and will follow through on what he actually believes. No, the reason is that the Israeli public is demanding that he follow through. And he is a political animal. He will calibrate to what the people, what he thinks is his only chance for political survival is to follow through. If he's weak, he's finished politically. If he's strong, he's still probably finished, but he has a shot. He has some chance of surviving this. And that's why he might follow through. It's because, again, uh, the politics. I'll just take one other dimension of Netanyahu. Um, it, when Netanyahu was a finance minister, he was very, very good at liberalizing his, the Israeli economy and moving it towards a greater free, free markets and, uh, uh, you know, towards more capitalism, less socialism. Israel historically was a socialist country. Ever since he became prime minister, that trend towards liberalization has basically halted. 
and he has maintained the status quo. So that Israel, which could, which is a rich country, could be a lot richer and a lot more successful, uh, if not for the kind of maintenance of socialist policies and status policies that still exist in its economy uh, today. And and so I, I'm not a fan of Netanyahu, just in case anybody. You're, you're hiding it well. Um, I think you I think you articulated that quite succinctly. I think so. This uh, this uh, is again one of those questions, but I got to ask it. Why should Americans care? I mean, Americans should care for a couple of reasons. One is uh, the enemy Israel's fighting has America in its crosshairs. Uh, the, and we saw that 9-11, and I know we've forgotten about 9-11, and we don't care about 9-11 anymore, and it's like ancient history. But it, the Islamist movement, which Hamas is part of, the Iranian-backed Islamist movement, which is global, uh, which Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and they, they might hate each other internally, but they're all a part of. That movement has at its crosshair the United States, always has, will continue to have. We are the ones who stand in their way for what they consider the goal of global domination. I mean, again, we Americans look at somebody saying global domination, we laugh, we think it's ridiculous and, and, and silly. These people take it seriously. They actually want it and they're willing to kill whoever and whomever uh, in order to achieve it. Uh, so Israel's, Israel's at the front lines. Israel's the front line of a... Of a of a war that we pretend we're not part of. We stick our hand in the sand. We try to deal with in a pretty pathetic way post 9-11 in, in a way where we lost day one, which only makes us more susceptible uh, to future attacks. Uh, Israel's doing part of the job for us in sustaining the United States and what I think the United States represents, which is civilization, call it Western civilization. I know that's not PC anymore, but but kind of a, a, a civilization that believes in uh, in uh, in freedom and in uh, the sanctity of the individual. And and that is that is important. And I think every American should support Israel because of that. The second reason is we should support them because they're the good guys. And America, America believes in good guys and bad guys, at least it used to. Uh, and uh, Israel stands on the side of that civilization. They stand on the side of freedom, of individualism, of, of relative free markets and relative, you know, free speech. All the things that we claim in the United States we believe in, Israel is an ally in those things. And the battle lines globally today, more than maybe at any point since the fall of the Berlin Wall, maybe even uh, before that, the battle lines today are ideological. We, we might want to ignore that. But Putin represents a particular ideology. Xi represents a particular ideology. The Iranians represent a particular ideology. And we and our Western allies, with all the criticism we can have on our own administration and our allies in the West, we represent a very, very, very different ideology than any of those guys. And if we don't support the people fighting against the bad guys, that ideology will come here and we will all suffer and we will all dread that fact. All right, I'm done, Mr. McKenna. Anything else? Any final words? Nope. Thanks for coming. It's, it's been interesting. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your, your perspectives will be definitely, um, I'm, I'm hoping we get some good feedback and we'll be sure to share it with you and we'll, we'll discuss it next time we get together. Sounds good. Looking forward to all that. Right. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Mr. Brooke, thank you. Well, that was certainly something, and now we're going to do something a little different. Yes, and please don't ever accuse us of only bringing 
on people on the show that agree with us because we don't even agree with each other half the time. Exactly. Giving you multiple perspectives on very important and complicated worldwide events. All right, here is another one. This is, when you talked earlier about the end of Gavin Newsom, I think you probably saw the same article. I didn't, actually. All right, well, let let me set this up for you. Fast food workers will make $20 an hour in California. A new California law increases the hourly wage for fast food workers to $20 an hour, starting in April of 2024. Yep. But there's a quirky exemption for Uh restaurants that sell and make bread. Okay. Like Panera Bread. Okay. That's part of the sausage making, California Governor Gavin Newsom said about the exemption. Of course, my immediate thought was, is that about the sausage making or the bread making? Bread making. 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 (laughs) I set that aside. Starting next April, 550,000 fast food workers in California will get a nearly 30% pay increase to $20 an hour at 3,000 restaurants in the state. But if you work at Panera Bread or Bowden Bakery, don't expect to benefit from the wage boost. The legislation signed into law on Thursday by California Governor Gavin Newsom does not include quick service restaurants that make and sell their own bread. Wow. It's unclear how restaurant chains like Panera came to be exempt from the fast food law. Well, let's clarify things a little since let's talk about the sausage making, shall we? Yeah. There's a guy named Greg Flynn who made his fortune running one of the world's largest restaurant franchise operations. He seems to be getting a new boost from sourdough loaves and brioche buns. This guy is one of Newsom's biggest donors. Donors. Shocker. Who one could... of his good friends. Let me ask you a question. Who, who could have seen that coming? He holds two dozen Panera Bread locations in California. Huh? And everyone, uh, again, uh, Newsom said specifically, well, you know, that's part of the sausage making and politics. I, I mean, I don't know what's going on here. In addition to contributing to the governor's campaigns, he. Greg Flynn now. Yeah. He says publicly that he was not involved in the decision. But according to folks on the uh, in the state capitol uh, and others, He urged the governor's top aides to reconsider whether fast casual change, such as Panera, should be classified as fast food. Hmm. It's fast casual, not fast food. Flynn attended the same high school as Newsom in the suburbs outside of San Francisco. Oh, boy. The future franchising mogul served as student body president as a senior the same year Newsom played basketball as a freshman. Over the years, Flynn's donations to Newsom's political campaigns have included $100,000 to fight off a conservative-led recall effort and $70,000 to support his election in 2022. Flynn has been known to tout his relationship with Newsom, according to familiar with the matter, with one saying the fast food entrepreneur has bragged that he can reach the governor via text. Yeah. So... (laughs) There you go, ladies and gentlemen. with this crap. There you go. I mean, what do you mean, California? It's it's the Panera Bread exception to the $20 wage increase, which is going to crush everybody else. Everybody else. Well, that's just part of the sausage making. 
that's you know what when you have a one party state that's the kind of stuff that goes on and you know what and i think this is part of what kills him quite honestly yeah, dude, like dude, what kills him is he's, what kills him probably is that he's now, a, he's a middle-aged white dude lest you think that mcdonald's and um everybody Burger else. king and everybody else going to start making making and selling bread Tim Kama, to his credit, found this little yeah. this little number in the bill. Fast food restaurants shall not include and establish that on September 15th, 2023, operates a bakery that produces for sale on the establishment's premises bread as defined under part 136 of SAP chapter B of chapter one of title 21 of the Code of Federal Regulations, so long as it continues to operate such a bakery. The exemption applies only where the establishment produces for sale bread as a standalone item and does not apply if the bread is available for so, for sale solely as part of another menu item. So they they made sure that if you didn't sell bread before last September, you can't you can't I want sell you... bread or you can't get the exemption. Ladies and gentlemen, is this is this what we've really come to in this country? We got we got people writing regulations about what bread is and isn't. I mean <laughs> Is this is this is this where the founders started? I mean, what the hell is going well, on in this country? It's like all these guys, what stoves to to I'm put not, in our houses. I'm not a libertarian, but I'm not a libertarian, but I'm pretty confident we could have 20 years of libertarian rule in this country, and it would probably help us. It would probably help us just to reset everybody's ex- expectations because this is crazy. All right, I have one more, and I know you have some. Go ahead. Some something you want to do, which I'm scared. And then we'll 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 um then we'll close with with a with an with then we'll do a we'll, okay we'll close yeah, we'll close all right so um I don't know who this guy is uh, Max Meyer he's a uh, uh, Twitter guy uh, this was given to us by uh, a friend of ours I've been thinking about two big trends he says layoffs in the media entire sites closing. Huge mineral discoveries in California and Wyoming. Wouldn't it heal our country to work on a solution together? <laughs> oh, boy. My idea is an FDR-style program for laid-off journalists. Make them, make them dig ditches? To get ditches? jobs in the mines. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a whole thread. As Taylor Lorenz recently points out, it's been a brutal time in the media business. And he goes through all the numbers of the layoffs. Then he talks about <laughs> the job opportunities with these mines, like the Salton Sea lithium stuff. <laughs> get, get out, get out, get under fresh air in the sunshine. Well, well teach him to code. Work in the salt mines. It's, it's like so that guy. Good. It's like that guy from last week. Maybe they should learn how to code. They're not good at what they do. Oh, it's so good. It's a perfect it's solution. Awesome. It, it, but the truth is that working in the mine is more honest. Than what many journalists are doing now. Oh, it's more useful. It's more useful <laughs> so, than what a lot of journalists are doing now. All that's right. For sure. uh, and then he closes it with a hashtag: Learn to mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Instead of learn to code. So we'll put that thread in the notes. Um, all right. Four is yours, and then we'll get out of here. Yeah, I got two things real quick. Um, which we I, I want to do a survey. We're gonna maybe put it in the show notes and ask everybody to or just get back to us. Whatever. It's a simple question. Who are you going to miss more in Washington, um, Myron or McConnell? That was my that's my, oh, that's, okay. that's, my that's my survey idea. Myron you have versus to be McConnell. An insider to know, right? The Myron thing? Yeah. 
I bet you most of our listeners have a faint yeah. idea who Myron Ebell is. If not, they should. So that's thing one. Thing two is Myron um, or Mitch. Myron or Mitch. Myron or Mitch. There we go. Um, okay, look, I, I had a birthday this week, and um, birthdays are always a reflective time for me. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. Everybody who made the birthdays special, everybody who was kind enough to send me something, everybody who is listening to this and has meant something to my life. Um, you know, I, I, I am very, very grateful and very, very aware that each and every one of you is a blessing in my life, most of which I have done nothing to earn or deserve. So I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. And um, I'm very, very honored and grateful to have all of you in my life. So thank you. Very well said. Not quite as well said, though, as our close. We haven't heard from our good friend in a while. I know you were slightly infatuated with her for a stretch. And so I thought I would um, grace us with uh, some words of wisdom from AOC. Let's have it country has gotten out of control. Our housing crisis has has gotten to such epic proportions that not just the poor, the working class, the middle class, upper middle class yeah. people can't even afford to live in the city anymore. Poor AOC lamenting about the rent. But does she little does she know how behind she is on this issue. Seriously, man. To live anywhere. Nowhere. There's nowhere to go. Once again, why? You said it, the rent is too damn high. <laughs> <laughs> AOC, AOC has got nothing on Mr. McMillan. She is so far behind on this issue. I miss that guy. We need to have that guy and Joe Cressbeckler on a ticket. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> All right, folks, we probably went a little long, but that's just the way it works when we interview people. But we just have, there was just so much happening this week, and we didn't want you to miss any of it. Happy birthday, Mr. McKenna. Episode number 171 is in the books. Namaste.